broadcasting high atop of Florida's peninsula at 108 feet. Is the podcast you're listening to, and I'm your host, Alpha Mike. Today, episode 100, my friends, we are going up, up, up. We're into the three digits now. Episode 100, Tampa Mob. In our Wise Guys series, we are going to discuss how the Tampa Mob influenced a lot of other aspects of organized crime. What exactly did they do? How in the world did they ever get involved in Cuba? And where are they today? So we will discover that. There's a lot to unravel here and unfold. So we're not going to waste any time. We're going to go straight to the leadership quote of the week. It is when people forget God that tyrants forge their chains. Patrick Henry. And of course, today we know that the tyrants are constantly walking around with chains because they long forgot God. How do you get in contact with us? RaiderCopNation.com. It's that easy. You click, 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 and we pop up. Of course, we're on tw- Twitter as what? RaiderCopNation. We're on Parler as what? RaiderCopNation. We're on Facebook as what? Raider Cop Nation. We're not that difficult to find. All you got to do is put Raider Cop Nation. Usually put it as one word and we pop up. And of course, the website address is Raider Cop Nation. Test Everything 1521 is mosey on along. Well, the numbers are a little bit better, but I wish they were better. These are the times people don't want to hear about God. Said that, we all know that. But that's the fact of reality. But I will continue to broadcast a wall Monday. Um, we also have been doing the uh, throwback days or the uh, Thursday, uh, back Thursday, whatever they, whatever the term is, and uh, we have been throwing out various episodes. I believe this is our fifth one already. Um, Recently, we, we threw out episode 65. So what am I saying? Our podcast broadcast every Wednesday. And on Thursday, it's throw, Throwback Thursday, we go ahead and throw out an old episode to keep people um, abreast of certain. We try to do it like if kind of blends or gels with uh, other terms or uh, I believe the last three we just did they were the top three and so we just threw them in there so um, so we've got that that's brewing too we're always moving along and of course there's a five minute Friday thing that's still on hold until the summer uh, disappears and we can try to organize that uh, five minute Friday that's going to be on YouTube so it'll be it's five minutes uh, mostly training segments and stuff like that, making you a better person, whatever you want to call it. But every Friday we'll throw out a video on that. That's coming uh, soon, soon. Just be patient, okay? Today we are going to discuss on episode 100 
the Tampa Mafia. And I spelt out what we're going to be looking at. This one topic is going to lead us into probably four or five Wise Guys series. And uh, there's a lot to unfold. Right after this one, we're going to go into the Cuban Mafia because, because of the Tampa Mafia. That eventually starts, and we'll explain that. And then we're going to talk about uh, other families that were involved in some of those decisions because of Tampa. So it's time to get the clowns, get the circus running, and it's time to hit the big tent. It all started in Ybor City, which is located in Tampa, by a gentleman named Manuel El Gallego Suarez. What did he do? Well, back in the 1880s or so, he developed or brought, better said, bolita, which is translated into English, small ball. And that was the beginning of gambling. 100 balls, all of them have different numbers. Place it in a sack. You draw the winning numbers. People can bet from $0.05, cents, $0.10, cents to quarter to dollars to hundreds of dollars on the winning numbers. It's called bolita. It's been around since that time, and it's still alive today. That was the beginning of what was to come with the Tampa Mafia, or better said, as the Traficante crime family. Now, before we get to who is Traficante, we've got to break down a little bit of what was around before him in the criminal enterprise of Tampa at the time. Uh, There was a gentleman by the name of Charlie Wall, and he was the neighborhood thug. He was the one that was well-connected Southern gentleman that connect, had the politicians, the judges in his pocket, the sheriff. And he also had a very lucrative Bolita operation in gambling. Bolita was very, very well known within three communities in Tampa. That of the Cubans, the Spaniards, and the Italians. All three were product of Tampa, and Ybor City. Charlie Wall moved the rackets, for lack of a better term, prior to any semblance of an Italian mafia. Then it came along a gentleman by the name of Ignacio Antonori, and he was credited, and he is credited as the first 
La Costa Nostra, boss of Tampa. Not very well organized at the time. They were swimming upstream trying to take out Charlie Wall's lucrative operation with little to no connections. That era was called the Era of Blood that lasted 10 years. At the end of that era, Charlie Wall ends up shotgun, shotgun blasting Antonori into oblivion and leaving uh, any opposition out of the way, but not quite so fast. Reason being, the underboss at that time for the Italian mafia against Charlie Wall was a gentleman by the name of Santos Traficante Sr., born in Sicily, arrived to the shores of Tampa at the tender age of 14, and married in to the Tampa Mafia when he married the daughter of Giorgio Cacciatore, which was also into Bolita. He quickly rose through the ranks, uh, Santos Traficante Sr., in the Antonori organization to resemble that of the underboss. Again, the reason I say resemble, because they weren't as organized at the time. We're prior to 1931, when Charlie Lucky Luciano actually organizes the commission. And we're also uh, looking at um, the first early developments of the Italian mob in Tampa. Not as well organized, mostly on Sicilian principles at the time. Santos Traficante becomes the boss because Antonori was knocked out of commission by Wall in 1940. And he, as I said, he killed him with two shotgun blasts, and that was the end of him. And it throws Traficante Sr. into the mix, so he becomes boss of what is now going to be called the Traficante crime family. He rules from 1940 to 1954. Now, Traficante had one important thing that Antonori had and didn't have. He did have a couple of connections, Antonori, with a couple of uh, main guys or main people in New York, mostly out of uh, the Luciano family. But he wasn't as well-versed as Traficante Sr. with some others, where Traficante, he knew and had close relationships with Joe Bonanno, Tommy Lucchese, and, of course, Luciano himself. Traficante doesn't waste any time when he takes over. He's taken over this huge gambling operation called Bolita, He's running the rackets. Things are looking good and promising. Connections up in New York. Now, during the era of blood, that was the 10-year war war between Charlie Wall and Ignacio Antonori, a lot of the guys up in New York that knew Traficante from Sicily were telling him, just like... Just sit back and let, let the action roll. And uh, Antinori gets killed, then you take over. So everybody was just doing a let's wait and see. 
buying time. Of course, by 1940, Luciano had already organized the commission, so Tampa coming on board was something very positive for the La Costa Nostra. One of the things that Santos Traficante Senior did was early on bring Santo Traficante Jr. into the fold. He showed him the ropes. He used them to the point of he wanted him to have the most uh, background and tutoring he could ever provide him. Santo Sr. reaches out to people like Tommy Lucchese from the Lucchese crime family and says, I need you to mentor my son, Santos Jr. He did. 1946, there was a big meeting, big commission meeting. The last one was in 1931 when Charlie Lucky actually proposed the commission. Now it's 1946, and Lucky Luciano had been arrested, served time, and deported to Italy, but he sails back to Cuba for this one big meeting in 1946 in the Hotel Nacional, and it's commonly called the Havana Conference. Everybody attended from Chicago, from Detroit, Cleveland, New York, of course. All the main players in La Costa Nostra attended the conference, and so did Traficantes. But Santos Sr. didn't go. He sent his son as an official rank of capo, but he was demonstrating to the New York La Costa Nostra and the rest of the bosses around the nation that his son would inherit the Traficante family. Santos Jr. quickly developed his roots in Cuba from 1946, protecting the investments that the family was doing in Cuba, hotels and casinos. As a result, in that meeting in 1946, there was a lot of decisions that were made and some of the slicing and dicing included the Traficante family. They were issued Florida. They were issued, of course, Tampa. And they were issued Cuba. But they had to organize Cuba. 1946, there was a lot of disturbing things that were going on. So everybody was going to get a piece of it. But Santos, Traficante, Senior, and Junior had the ability to put their name on it. And they took the most of it. Under the guidance and mentorship of Thomas Lucchese, Santos, Traficante, Junior learned everything he could. His father dies in 1954. Now, prior to his father's death, of natural causes. Traficante Jr. in 1953 is shot. Somebody shoots him. They weren't really sure at the time who it could be, but then they remembered an old menace that they had back in the Antonori days, and that was Charlie Wall. Well, he was still around becoming a tick in their ass, so 
Santos Jr. took care of him. A couple of shotgun blasts for Charlie Wall in 1955, and he was gone. Santos Jr. takes over the Rackets from 1954, the death of his father, and he rules with an iron fist. It's one of the things that he learned in his mentorship. He guided the family to lucrative business operations that his father really didn't foresee, but he did. Obviously, we know that the interest in Cuba from 1946 to 1959 were running pretty good. And uh, there were other interests in Cuba there, too, like Meyer Lansky. Other crime families were there. But the Traficantes really took off with that operation. They actually fled Tampa in, in the 50s because of congressional hearings. You know, they had... Uh, the uh, congressman, the wacky congressman with the with the gavel and the microphone, very similar to what we have today. And they were doing uh, mob commission hearings back then in the 50s, going around the country. So the traficantes, they said, well, that's time for us to split out of here and head to Cuba, and they did. They left a guy in charge by the name of Ataliano, in charge of the rackets while they were gone. But uh, he was not effective leader as they thought, and um, he was uh, muscled out by somebody else, a guy by the name of Lumia. And uh, Charlie Wall was still hanging around too, thinking it was funny. So when the Tafikantes headed back to Tampa to take care of business, Junior got shot. Junior got shot. Dad dies a year later. Uh, Junior gets shot in 53. Dad dies in 54. Junior takes over in 54. And Junior takes care of Charlie Wall and his problem. Now, there's a lot of things that we're going to start breaking down a little bit here. Uh, when he returns in 1953, Junior, he takes out Jimmy Lumia and... It was assigned to a lot of Costa Nostra around the country that Tampa was a reckoned force to be dealt with. This young man, Santos Traficante Jr., was part of an era, took over in Tampa in a war. He was mentored by Thomas Lucchese, boss of the Lucchese crime family. And they had a lot of connections with the Bananos as well. So they were affluent in, as far as they had votes on the commission. If you, you know, you're going to vote against somebody you know and you like. So the Traficantes were up and movers. That quickly earned them a seat on the commission, where Santos Traficante Jr. wasn't shy about that seat. He wore that very proudly. Now, during his era, uh, there was a couple of things that were moving. They're not only were moving Bolita, the rackets uh, that were common in that time with the mob, but there was also narcotics that were being moved. A lot of the narcotics were going to come from Europe, port in Cuba, 
remember this is pre-Castro days, and then they would go to ports in New Orleans through the Gulf of Mexico and Tampa, Florida. They would also dock some of that uh, heroin and stuff like that they were bringing through New York and New Jersey, and there they had the Genovese and the Gambino family that would take care of business up there. Um, Carlos Marcello of New Orleans guaranteed shipments in New Orleans and, of course, the Traficantes in Tampa. That alone gave him a better seat on the commission. Not only did he have a seat, but he was really comfortable in that seat as well. Now, of course, like everything else, being a boss of a family that he was a boss of for over 30 years, Santos Traficante Jr., came with some controversy. And when he was in Cuba, after Fidel took over, everybody fled. Lansky fled and all the other mafia interests that were on the island. But Traficante stayed. He had the idea that the Castro brothers would come to their senses and know that they needed gambling to finance a lot of their operation. So he decided to stay in place. Unfortunate for him, they arrested him and placed him in, in prison in Cuba because he was too friendly to uh, the former dictator of Cuba, Batista's brother-in-law. And uh, so they threw him in jail. And his confidant attorney had a run down there, a guy by the name of Frank Regano, that turns into his advisor. Now, Rugano is a real attorney. And a lot of this comes, a lot of these things you might see being played out in the movie, The Godfather, part one and part two. And Rugano was of Sicilian descent, and he went to law school, very successful. But he was hungry, like all other young attorneys, and uh, the mafia was paying in cash. You act uh, naive, you act like you don't know what's going on, and you jump into the opportunity. Days become months, months become years, and next thing you know, Frank Regano is a trusted advisor to Santos Traficante Jr. That makes a whole lot of problems for Frank Regano. And uh, he had several run-ins with the, F, uh, with the uh, IRS on tax fraud. Won one, lost one. Won uh, the first original case against him with the IRS. He was convicted of, but he wins it and overturns it in appeal. And only four years later to get caught up in another one where he had to actually serve, I believe it was something like nine months, and uh, his legal practice was ruined. Um, there's a lot of research, a lot of paperwork out there, and a lot of video that show Frank Regano regretting he ever met the mob, but he knew what he was getting into. That's what he, we can definitely say. Now, there's a, a couple of things about how they... Traficante family, there are 
several reportings of Santro Traficante Jr. at commission meetings. Of course, Appalachia, when they met up in upstate New York and they had a commission meeting there, remember the last one would be in the Havana Conference 1946. Now it's 1957. They just uh, got rid of uh, Anastasia, the Mad Hatter, and that put Gambino in the driver's seat. They tried to whack Frank Costello in 1957. He was the boss of the Luciano family. And uh, Frank wasn't having any of that. He was shot in the head uh, by Vincent the Gigante. And Frank thought about it and said, you know what? I got a lot of money. I'm doing pretty good. I think I'll sit this one out and I'll retire. He did. And he left the, the door open for Vito Genovese for the family that carries his name today. So 1957, very important year. So in this meeting up in Appalachia, upstate New York, all these bosses now are attending to business. This was the meeting where Vito Genovese wanted to declare himself boss of bosses. Capo de tutti capi. And uh, some people weren't going to have it, and some people made a phone call to the 911 local 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 police cops and told them, hey, you might want to look a bunch of Italian guys hanging around your neighborhood, hanging out in one specific home. They busted a lot of commission of members that were there. Over 60 were arrested. Many, many more got away. Some real big names, and one of them, Santos Traficante Jr. He had a prominent seat on the table. That seat allowed him to broker a lot of deals. There was a another, um, I would say, commission meeting. I don't want to call it a conference. In uh, Queens, New York, in the year 1966, in a restaurant called La Stella. And there, cops broke up the party, too. And they arrested a lot of prominent people, Lucchese, Campino, Colombo family. They were all sitting pretty on the table, defining how the mob would be run, not only in the five boroughs of New York, but in the country. And who was also sitting at that table? Well, none other than Santos Traficante Jr. and his trusted attorney and confidant, Frank Regano. His power is brokering and breaking deals. Again, his mentorship to Tommy Lucchese was done intentionally for him to have that power. Lucchese, of course, dies in 1967, but Traficante never missed a beat. Traficante's operation in Bolita and his holdings of Cuba are no longer, they're no longer around, but Bolita is. One of the things that Santos Traficante Jr. did was he had a stranglehold on Florida. And any Costa Nostra family that wanted to operate in Florida, they needed to ask for permission from him. Because he wasn't only a boss, he was sitting on a commission. 
So you couldn't come down here and I'm with so-and-so and all this and I'm a soldier and I'm a captain. Nobody saw you. This guy's a boss and he's on the commission. So everybody treaded very carefully in Florida asking for permission and order to deal in Florida. Now, at the end... There are some interesting things that happened. We discussed that Santos Traficante Jr. was in jail in Cuba, imprisoned by the Castro brothers. He wasn't there very long. Frank Regano did get him out. Most likely he had to pay a huge amount of money to get him out. And he went back to the States. Shortly after Traficante arrives back to the States, it's believed that he was approached by the Central Intelligence Agency, because they knew he had a vendetta to get back at Castro because of the millions that he had lost in Cuba with casino and some hotels that he actually owned. Of course, uh, Santos Traficante Jr. testifies in a Senate, or excuse me, a congressional hearing and he basically says that, yes, that the CIA did recruit him. And uh, he just uh, very, uh, not too many details, explains that he gave that to somebody else to handle and uh, gets himself out. He blames, um, from Chicago, Sam Giancana, and, uh, that he had a lot more to do with it than he did. And, of course, we know how... Uh, Sam Giancana ended up on his kitchen floor with two bullet bullet holes in the back of his head. So that might not have been good for him. But Traficante was a player. He was a mover and shaker in Costa Nostra. And there's a big controversy, whether it's true, not true, coincidental, that when Kennedy was shot, him and Rogano, the trusted attorney, were celebrating the death of the president. And a lot of people believe that because the mafia had something to do with that killing. Of course, dispelled rumor, fake news, and everything else you can call it today. But what I will say is he was a boss sitting on the commission. A lot of mobsters would tell you it was a small little cow town in Florida. He wasn't wasn't nothing that important, but he was. Because the power came from the commission. And if you sat on that commission, it doesn't matter if you had 30 guys under you. You still had power. Now, a lot of these smaller La Costa Nostra families like Tampa and others, they didn't run like the traditional Costa Nostra in New York with the boss, underball, consulary, couples, and soldiers, associates, you're looking at uh, you know hundreds, thousands of people in one organization. Where in Chicago you have officers, um, excuse me, you had uh, soldiers and then you had lieutenants. And then, of course, you had a boss. A little bit more structured. But in these places, they were not that structured. You basically had a boss and an underboss in case the boss wasn't around and everybody else kind of swang with the same power. They had rackets that they were in charge of. So, for example, Traficante's little brother, Henry, was in charge of the gambling operation in Tampa of Bolita. 
very lucrative, brought in millions of dollars. And Henry, Henry thought that, well, the day my brother kicks the bucket or he gets ready to retire, I'm going to take over the family. In 1987, now this is another memorable day in La Costa Nostra history. Remember, we've got a couple of dates here. 1931, Luci uh, Luciano and the creation of the commission is done. 1946, the Havana Conference, very important. 1957, Appalachia becomes a, a mockery. 1966, the Stella Restaurant in Queens. And 1987 is one of those other historical, 86, 87, another historical dates in the mafia era where the government came down on the bosses on the commission case. And if you were a boss, you were under arrest and there was indictments. Genovese, Lucchese, Colombo, they all suffer here. Bonanno, not necessarily... And uh, the Gambinos pretty much got out of it, but Paul Castellano was the boss of the Gambino family at that time. But we know that John Gotti didn't approve of that. And two gun blasts on the back of uh, Paul Castellano's head, and John Gotti was the boss. So they, Castellano never ends up going through the commission hearings or commission meetings. Well, Santo Traficante also had legal troubles in 86 and 87. And uh, he's out on an appeal and working his case where he has, he asked for like some time from the court because he was uh, suffering from a medical ailment and he was going to go get an operation. They gave it to him, they granted it to him, he goes to Houston, Texas, goes under the knife, but never came back, died on the operating table. The issue is this. If we're going to look at mob history, Saltos Traficante Jr. ruled with an iron fist Florida's rackets. He was a commission member. He was a boss of a family. He dies suddenly and unexpectedly on an operating table. There is an underboss, and that is Vicente Locasalzo. And as a result, everybody's shocked of what occurred. And now the Traficante family has a new boss. The commission meeting, the commissioner, the, the, the bosses of every family, they didn't want to deal with Tampa. They had enough problems. They were going away for 100 years apiece. Carmine Par Persico, the boss of the Colombo family, well, he thought he'd defend himself, which was really a brilliant move, and we'll bring that up in a future podcast because he got to cross-examine and not take the stand himself. So legally, that was a smart move on his part. But he defended himself, and they were all looking at 100 years. And guess what? They all got 100 years. So the last thing they were worried about is who's run the rackets in Tampa. So it leaves a lot to be desired as to what occurred after Santos Traficante. Now, Mafia LCN rumor mill will tell you 
that the commissioner, the commission, as soon as they had the opportunity to make a ruling, they put his underboss's boss, but they also declared that South Florida would be open territory. So because since 1940, they, they couldn't get in. They couldn't get in, period, from, because they ruled with an iron hand. Yeah, they got a couple of rackets here, a couple of rackets there, but they had to kick back up. They had to give that money and that share to Santos Traficante Sr. and Jr. And now he dies suddenly, and they go, oh, wow, there's a great opportunity to open up the door. Well, they didn't want northern Florida. There's nothing there. They can't take Tampa. He's there. So they, they, they put that South Florida would be open. Now, the Traficantes were, his power base was more than just New York. Some families, small families, they had connections. For example, I'll give you an example. Philadelphia, which maybe had about 60 made members, maybe a little bit more, they were very friendly, and they had their power base with the Genovese family and the Gambinos to a certain extent. And, but they didn't have any other relations with other family members. Maybe the Buffalinos, which were in Pennsylvania, but other than that, they didn't, you know, it wasn't West Coast, Los Angeles, or Chicago, nothing. You know, there were small interactions, but not any real rooted connections. Traficante didn't have that. He knew everybody, and everybody knew him because everybody was involved in Cuba. And everybody wanted a piece of that. And those routes that he had were million-dollar routes that were bringing uh, that bad stuff from from Europe over to America. So he knew bosses in Chicago, Los Angeles, New Orleans, Buffalo, Cleveland, uh, Boston, New York, New Jersey. And he dealt with all of them. So he had friends. So they saw it as a golden opportunity that the Traficantes uh, didn't see what was coming. Their underboss takes over, but they're a small fraction. They maybe have 30, 40 guys at this time, and they're all old. So there was no plans for the future. The commission rules that South Florida would be open territory, and they, they took that and ran with it. Of course, after... Uh, Traficante, Vincent Loscalzo takes over on the books today. He's still what is considered as the boss. The FBI basically says that the the Tampa Mafia no longer really exists, just labeling about three current members and uh, elderly as well. And they're not much to look at. So according to what's on the books today, although the FBI has declared it defunct, you still have uh, the boss since 1987 to the present, which is elderly now, Vincent Loscalzo. He's probably retired. His underboss was uh, Frank Albano. And... um, Again, you can't run anything if you ain't got nothing to run. And they have one made member on the books, uh, Salvatore Sam Corolo. 
And so there's not much left there. So what happens? They are descendants of the Traficantes. They're still around, you know, nephews and so forth. And the New York families, there's a, a lot of speculation. There was a lot of rumor back in maybe about 10 years ago that the Gottis, uh, John Gotti Jr., was trying to muscle into Tampa. But no, that was just an arrangement that... Um, they had with the Traficante family, just like they had previous years. Anybody could come down here. You can run whatever racket you want. You went, you sat down with the old man. He gave you his blessing, and you made made sure that you gave him some envelopes. So I don't think that uh, the Gambinos and the Gotti that had anything to do with them taking over anything. That was uh, another part of make sure the envelope comes in. Today, it is uh, divvied up by the five, five families, and I would venture to say, because of the state of the Tampa mob, that or the Traficante family, that uh, whatever remnants that they have left have been absorbed by the five families of New York as well. Where do we go from here with this? The Tampa mob, well, because of Santo Traficantes' huge connections in the underworld, sitting on the commission and having that personal relationship with people like Luzzi Luciano and Joseph Bonanno and Tommy Lucchese, and we go on and on and on, they are movers and shakers. They open up, Santo Traficante Jr. does, he opens up. And our next two episodes that we're going to look at, episode 101 and 102, the Cuban Mafia. And as Cubans start to come to this country right after 1961, 1960-61, they start to come over here. Fidel Castro has taken over Cuba. And a lot of them uh, thought they would be here temporarily and then they can go back once they dethroned the Castro regime, but that never happened. So a lot of them took up positions working for the CIA. A lot of them were in the military trying to overthrow the Cuban regime. And a lot of them became frustrated and tired of waiting. So the one we're going to talk about in the next two episodes, they reach out to the one man that they knew who to reach out to to make it happen, and that is Santos Traficante Jr. For his blessing and for them to take over Bolita operations, not only in Florida. Of course, Traficante had his Bolita operation under his brother Henry, Henry Traficante, a huge operation. They weren't going to give that to anybody. But they would open up the rest of Florida. All they had to do was kick up. They also gave the Cuban mafia parts of uh, New Jersey and New York. And this deal becomes extremely lucrative, not only for the Cubans, but for the Italian mob too. And that's what we have up next. So, wrapping it all up, Let's see what, what we're going to have a debriefing now.
Our debriefing leaves us to believe that the Tampa mob has gone off into history, off into the sunset. It lasted as long as it did. It made a lot of money for La Costa Nostra. It had a huge power base. But it died because it was allowed to die. Traficante Jr. and his ultimate wisdom basically said, it is what it is. He never planned for the future. He had the membership nice and old that he could trust. He never saw anything beyond it. It could have been for one or two reasons. Why he knew it wasn't worth building on it. Or is what they told him, once you're gone, you got to open up Florida. And it's every man for himself. I believe that they will absorb whatever's left by influences, families up in New York. And today, Florida is booming with mobsters all over it because it is a huge market. Not only are millions of people moving to Florida, but those operations are still around today. And for anybody to believe that nobody is taking over Florida, you've got to be deaf, dumb, and stupid because Florida represents a power base to a lot of families. And you have to ask yourself, where do all these guys go when they retire, supposedly retire? They go to Florida. So without a doubt, Santos Traficante Sr. and Jr. were a huge influence on La Costa Nostra. They ran Tampa with an iron fist. They opened up the floodgates for the mob from Chicago, New York, and all around the country, including Sicily. And they made a lot of money in the process. What do we have up next in episode 101? Well, the Cuban Mafia. We're going to look at how the blessing of Santos Traficante, through this one act, he made a monster of an organization. Did he do it personally? No. All he did was give his blessing. Because remember, with his blessing came what? An envelope. And I'm sure that Traficante Jr. got a whole lot of influence envelopes from the Cuban Mafia. Folks, it has been my honor and my pleasure to be your host on Radio Cop Nation. As always, keep yourself in prayer, because if you're not in the game, we don't have anything. Keep your family in prayer, your community, the police agencies that serve you in prayer, and most importantly, continue to pray for the United States of America. This is Alpha Mike. I'm out. And guide her through the night with a light from above. From the mountains to the prairies to the oceans white with foam. 
Chestnut, 1322.